0: You're listening to the Rua Space Podcast. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Rua Space Podcast, where we help you make space for the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in your everyday life. I'm Phil, and today I am honored to be joined by Luke Wilson, author of the book, 40 Days of the Fathers, A Journey Through Church History. Now, friends, where we are today is a result of thousands of years of history of what came before. And there have been people that shape the disciplines we practice, the way that we read scripture, the way church even works. And looking into those lives can be very helpful, both men and women who came before us. And so I'm excited that Luke has joined us today to talk about some of those people, to talk about his book of A Journey Through Church History, something that you can find in the description below. Now, friends, before we get into that conversation, while you are in the description, clicking the link to buy Luke's book, you will also find links to many of the really great things we are up to here at Rua Space, including our Christ-centered yoga classes, which are on YouTube and in memberships, classes for all levels, all ages. Basically, postures of prayer movement combined with breath, scripture, prayer, meditation, essentially bringing Jesus to the mat. And in our memberships, we love making classes for people who are our members, who want something specific for them on their journey. So that's something we can do in the memberships, but you can also check out classes for free on YouTube. Links to both of those things are in the description below. Also, if you've been enjoying these interviews, which we now do 100% interviews here on the podcast, we would love If you would consider supporting us on our Patreon page for just a few dollars a month, you help us continue to do this ministry, bring these great guests onto the podcast, and you gain access to some really awesome exclusive content made just for Patreon. Live events, guided practices, special series, and more. And then finally, friends, I do now also offer one-on-one spiritual mentoring or spiritual direction where we explore your story, explore questions you may have about your faith, essentially walk on the journey together to grow deeper in our relationship with God and our walk with Jesus. So if you're wondering more about what spiritual direction might be, I would love to set up a free call with you. You can set that up at the link below or just email me at connect at ruaspace.com. I work with all budgets. I don't want money to be a barrier because I believe that this is a vital part of our spiritual growth journey. So I'd love to set up a call with you to talk about what that would look like. So you can find links to everything and more in the description below we'd love to be a part of your journey in one of those ways so friends with all of that said thank you so much for being with us here today here is my conversation with luke wilson luke welcome to the ruaspace podcast such an honor to have you join us today from across the pond How, how are things on your side of the world
1: Nighttime. Uh, We've got a massive storm coming overnight. So everyone's battening down the hatches and preparing for the worst.
0: (laughs) Well, man, I appreciate you squeezing us in then before that comes, uh, bringing that English accent to the podcast. You know, we've had some people from Ireland before and not enough from the UK. So this, this I think, will be good for the audience's ears
1: to get more Brits on,
0: don't you? 100%, 100%. So, you know, your book, 40 Days of the Fathers, A Journey Through Church History, it, it stood out to me, because in my own journey, just to be honest, I have not explored sort of early church history to the extent that I would like. I've gone into it, I know it, I recognize it, but there is a lot here and so i'm really grateful for your book what brought you to to it and kind of can you explain a little of what this project is
1: yeah it was it started i guess is what you might call a passion project it was um time in my life i was i'll say i was at the non, a non-denominational church uh for last like 10 years and then prior to that evangelical types, baptists you know standard fare and I got to the point going you know all we do is we come to church we sing a couple of songs we listen to a 20-minute sermon a couple more songs have coffee and that was basically it we might throw in communion every now and again and not necessarily very reverently <laughs> so not where I was anyway it's just kind of put them like yeah if you want to do it you can do it mm. so I was just at that sort of thing i going I felt very disillusioned with the whole thing like, you know, I wasn't questioning my faith, but just rather the the church, way we do things, why we do things. And just got a bit, mm. is this really what Jesus came and died for, for us just to sing a few songs and listen to something and go home, worry about our Sunday roasts? Or uh, is this how it was in the New Testament times? You know, the apostles, is this what they did? Is this the model? Are we really following that? So I just thought, you know what, I'll go back as early as I can, find as early a text as possible that still exists, and go from there and see where I come out.
0: And what did anything major shift for you then as you started digging in? Like, what, where did that journey sort of take you? I mean, I guess that's what the whole book is about, but was there a major point that sort of helped you?
1: Um yeah I guess because I had been to Bible college like probably longer ago than I like to think now graduated in 2008 so <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I did um I did take church history there and the if you saw the the dedication the book it is to my lecturer who sadly now died um but he uh He did make it fun. He always used to make little songs and dances about different things to make it catchy. But still, at the time, it was interesting to me. I've always liked history, but it still wasn't enough to make me, you know, think, oh, this is something I need to really get into. And so I didn't really take on board what I was learning. It was only one lecture a week, maybe every other week. So it was, you know, not as prominent as the other stuff we were doing. And uh, and the one other thing I found was, even despite that, it was a it was a AOG assemblies of God. I don't know if you have it over there. Denomination, sort uh, of. I'm not sure. It's kind of charismatic Pentecostalish, sort of blend, that sort of flavor. So you can imagine the theology that we're being taught was probably less his historically focused more modern scholars we looked at pentecostal church history from like azusa street 1800s onwards that kind of thing so less ancient church history more uh, modern i guess 1800s plus but even then there's a lot of uh people would say in some lectures you know like liturgical practices that kind of thing and more traditional denominations that was more medieval invention and you know that was all stuff that was added on to the to the pure and true practice of the church (laughs) and you know and if you speak to any baptists they'd be like oh no you know we're the pure and true way (laughs) so um yeah so as i was going through church history and reading the early texts, they were highly liturgical you know with the eucharist the baptism rites just the standard way church services were described and I was just that was the main thing that struck me at first was you know I was like whoa everything I've been told is wrong (laughs) (laughs) it's kind of the opposite liturgical practices weren't added later they were kind of removed later Mm. in certain denominations so that was the first sort of head spin of going you know I need to sort of really rethink everything and start fresh here
0: yeah yeah You know, what changed my mind on on liturgy was Jamie Smith's book, Desiring the Kingdom. And he talks about um, cultural liturgies, even like the shopping mall, the football stadium, um, basically how our lives and hearts are shaped. And he went through why the church has different liturgical practices as faith formation. And that really started to shift my thinking. And yeah, realizing how important some of these elements were to the early church uh, sort of opens our eyes to, well, why are they there? Why did we lose them? What, you know, what sort of aspects might we bring back in? And for a podcast where we talk a lot about spiritual formation, the disciplines we participate in, you know, that Sunday morning service is a big part of it. That's a -hmm. big space where we get shaped, even though we teach individual practices, prayer, meditation, and other community things. What we do on Sunday mornings meant to shape us. And even as a pastor, sometimes I've thought, man, how, how is the service shaping us? I'm not sure we're sort of engaging it in all the ways we we really could.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, especially because I grew up in an Anglican church until I was like 18-ish before we moved house and went to a different church from my parents. And it was just, it wasn't Anglican then, it was fact of moving nothing really particular against church it was just moved house moved places different church congregation so but i had that sort of sort of liturgical root in my back of my mind so as i was reading the early things i was like oh you know this is the same wording that i remember from growing up like
0: mm.
1: and then that struck me that was like just how like, the breadth of the history from like early second century was being repeated still today in the church and i was just like you know, wow, that's quite a thing to be saying the same things, you know, we're in that same stream tradition of hundreds of thousands of people before us over the centuries, you yeah. know.
0: They can be pretty powerful, um, and there's a reason it yeah. stuck around for that long.
1: Yeah, it's just how much that sort of impacted me then of like, I don't know, I find it hard to put to words why that sort of struck me so much, but you know, just feeling like, Suddenly I felt connected to the wider mm. church body over the ages rather than just we're here now in this little town, in this little church. You know, Christianity started the day I discovered it, kind of thing.
0: <laughs> no, absolutely. No, I've discovered that to be true. And even on days, you know, praying the Lord's Prayer and thinking of the people praying the Lord's Prayer around the world, what that's prayer has meant. Um, For millennium, right? Mm. That's a powerful connecting thing. And there's other elements in the church that do that. So for us here, our audience is often used to hearing words like silence, solitude, prayer, meditation, fasting. So when I was looking through your book and and reading it, some of the chapters that got me the most excited were Athanasius writing about the life of Anthony. So could you sort of take us into who was Anthony? And why does his life play so prominently among our history, especially among sort of Christian contemplatives and uh, mystics, if you will, which using that word just to mean someone who's had a real experience of God.
1: Yeah, the, the mystic word comes sort of a dirty word in some church circles, hasn't it?
0: Yeah, <laughs> unfortunately.
1: Yeah, it, it bugs me a little bit as well. I'm just like, you know, the mystics, they're the prophets, the the seers and the things like that, you know. Yeah. If we didn't have that word, the Old Testament prophets would be mystics, you know, it's just
0: Right, isn't it Karl Rahner? Anyway, it's it's a, like, so that's well, a whole other
1: side say side <laughs> a little rant I could go on. <laughs> it
0: is, no, but I mean, I think this is important because I think it's Karl Rahner. Didn't he say something like all, all Christians are going to be mystics or nothing at all? Essentially, you're going to have a real experience of God or, or nothing at all. And I think it's important that this type of work rooting this back into Athanasius and and Anthony shows that this isn't some sort of new age thing, right? Which a lot of people say, oh, mysticism, that's like new agey, that's new. And actually these practices are rooted in the earliest part of the church, especially the earliest part of the church trying to escape empire, which is very much the situation you and I are living in today.
1: Yeah. And um, even not necessarily just dedicated mystic practices like the monastics and that the whole church was mystic in its very origin Mm. you know we've got the word of god becomes flesh i mean that in itself is a highly mystically concept you know it's in its purest way if you like it's not just the real experience with god it's the real god experiencing us and us experiencing him in the flesh more then but you know we experience it not in the flesh but yeah, yeah <laughs> you know what no, I mean no absolutely I mean it's the whole of the faith is rooted in that sort of mystic sort of experience birth yeah. out of the birth of Christ in and into the Holy Spirit baptism and then the early church you see like in the baptism rites it's still very much what we might call baptism or re- regeneration which is often still a like another dirty word to some people or might call that heresy or something, but, you know, it's very much orthodox in that, you know, the water is empowered with the Holy spirit. And when you're baptized, you are born again, like literally in the waters, you die with die with Christ. You're risen again. Holy spirit comes upon you. They were Give chrism, which is like the anointing of oil to symbolize the Holy Spirit coming on you. And even in the Eucharistic things, you know, it was not necessarily transubstantiation, but definitely the language of the real trueness of Christ in the elements. So it's it's mysticism all the way through. It's just it's you know pushed away in some modern churches.
0: Yeah, no doubt. We'll, we'll shy it.
1: away from that language, you know.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. But I mean, these are the places where we where we have those important experiences, where we learn to know how does the spirit feel, how does the spirit speak, these types of things. So, take us into Anthony a little bit. Tell us a little bit about yeah. his story. Maybe you can start us with the fact that he was a rich guy, right?
1: Yeah, it was. He was yeah from a wealthy family. I would really love uh, the the uh, life of Anthony is one of my favorites ever since reading it. Like, so much happens to him, and so much you can learn from him as well. And his impact on the world, yeah, especially on the Christian world, through down the ages, is not small. So, yeah, like you said, Anthony was from a rich family. Uh, I'm guessing he lived in Egypt. He was quite wealthy for his time. I don't know how wealthy, but from the sounds of it, you know, rich enough maybe not one percent rich like we think of today but definitely upper middle class (laughs) but um yeah so i think his parents died somehow not sure i can't remember if he got told the details anyway he's orphaned he inherits all the wealth him and his sister he has to look after his sister because uh that's you know what, what is what is this like Third century, early fourth century or something. So women didn't really have great standing in society. So it was down to the, the men of the family to look after them. He uh, goes off to a, a goes to a church one day. He has a sermon. And I think they were preaching about uh where Jesus speaks to the young rich guy and tells him to sell all his wealth and follow him. And I think he's he phrases it like when he heard that it was almost like the, the the preacher or god was speaking directly to anthony so it really struck him he, the way anthony writes it as if he just dropped everything ran out of the church that moment and then sold everything and we gave it all away wow and then uh yeah and then there's a little bit of a almost a footnote later of oh and he sort of looked after his sister still with some of that money <laughs> When you read it, he's kind of like, okay, so he just ran off, sold everything, and kind of forgot the sister. But no, he um, I think she got some of the money, and then got put up in a uh, what we'd call like a nunnery, I guess now, monastics for women. So she went off to a commune, and he sold everything and tried to follow the people that were trying to live in sort of monastic lifestyles. So he is called the father of desert monasticism. But he's not necessarily the father of all monasticism. Right. Because um, he was trying to copy and learn from other people who were sort of what we'd call monks in the Christian faith. But so obviously it existed at the time, but he completely reshaped how that was worked out.
0: Yeah. So, so how did he do that? Right. Because he, he essentially he moved to the desert. And he lived a life of solitude, right? Sort of releasing all connections to, you know, food even and to worldly possessions. Um, I mean, there's this quote you have, I believe this is, well, this is Athanasius writing about Anthony. So perhaps Anthony Mm. said it, right? But he said, nor let us think as we look at the world that we have renounced anything of much consequence for the whole earth is very small compared with all the heaven. Therefore, let the desire of possession take hold of no one. For what gain is it to acquire these things which we cannot take with us?
1: Yeah. I mean, he had a <laughs> definitely powerful heart hitting with his words, isn't
0: he? Yeah, absolutely.
1: He's, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of everything with that, it kind of really strikes you, doesn't it? Um, I found that everything kind of just it makes you reevaluate things sometimes. Just yeah, his utter commitment to that.
0: Yeah. Like, well, so he's living out in the desert, right? So, like what what was Yeah, like so like? He's, can you describe it for us a little? How how did it how so did he, it happen that he became the father, I guess?
1: Yeah. So what he did, because there was people who were acting in monastic sort of ways, so living separate from their communities, dedicating their lives to prayer and all that, but they seemed to live just on the outskirts of their towns, or maybe just in little huts outside of their normal town areas so they didn't really go far they just sort of separated themselves slightly and they all had different ways of doing certain things like some were dedicated to fasting some more to prayer some to whatever else so he would go and learn from them he'd go to the next one and learn from them and go to the next one and learn from them and it, i don't know it's almost like he was seeking something but not quite finding enough there to dedicate himself completely to God in the way he wanted so what he did was found I think he found someone who was living close to the desert and then essentially like long story short he took the best aspects of all these different people he'd learned from and sort of combined it into his own sort of monastic rite and then uh, went off into the deep desert and uh, found like a little abandoned building by the side of the Nile, and lived there for 20 years on his own.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that, that's, yeah, I mean, that's a pretty um, bold move, right? Trying to sort mm. of be in solitude for 20 years. I mean, sort of how is he using his time then? Because I think for for someone hearing this today, you know, you may be called, to. there's still people who live out in the desert and do this, but there's sort of a, a um, new monasticism, as some are calling it, or a mm. learning from his practices, you know, for us who are moms and dads and aren't going to just move out into the desert, right? Yeah. We, we we work, you know, a nine to five, whatever, but we're looking to incorporate the connection that he had with God. What do we know of some of the practices that he was partaking in in this time that we might say, hey, I don't have to necessarily move to the desert, but I can embody something of how Anthony was living.
1: Yeah. So I guess the main thing is his, just his dedication to prayer, like waking up, he'd pray, go to sleep, he'd pray. He, I think um, you heard of the Jesus prayer. I'm guessing you have. You know, Absolutely. Yeah. Lord Jesus Christ, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Just in case the people listening haven't heard of it. Um, he, that came out of monastic practice, not necessarily Anthony, but of that same desire to pray without ceasing, as Paul says. So there's that sort of history of trying to constantly live in prayer, and a state of prayer. So he was in his cell. He was just praying all the time, seeking God. Uh, it doesn't i just can't off the top of my head, think if there was necessarily any details exactly what he prayed, but he was definitely just trying to live in that complete presence of God. And I guess he was praying probably for his communities and the people around him because he did seem to have quite a following. People seemed to find out about him, find out about his new combined way of teaching, uh, being a monk, whatever you want to call it. And he seemed to try and stay away from them and just live on his own. <laughs> which yeah. also resulted in lots of spiritual warfare as well.
0: Yeah, that was a pretty fascinating part of it. The the sort of attacks that came on him physically, spiritually, all of this and how he sort of mm. just kept connecting back to God and God would heal him, right? God would provide for yeah. him in these spaces.
1: Yeah, or maybe sometimes it was just the visions were so vivid that he looked like he was more hurt and then it he wasn't. So he was that. Yeah, it's kind of quite trippy when you read it, isn't it?
0: Yeah. No, absolutely. <laughs> and to me, I think the thing that that stands out from it is, you know, he was going to the desert. It seems as, as even from that quote, renouncing things. You know, someone like might, might say, "Well, does that mean I need to start, you know, getting rid of food and all my possessions?" And and while we may say no, that may not. Although maybe some some things we don't need, <laughs> but there seems to be still though this. There is something important about stillness and about silence, and even if we're not moving to the desert, there seemed to be this connection to moving away from all the distractions, and it's funny to me, because you, this is nearly 2,000 years ago, it's like, wait a minute, what could distractions, could there have been compared, <laughs> compared to today, right, with our phones oh, and, and everything, but there still were, and he, they, the, the, the monastic communities were realizing we had to create space in order to connect with God.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, mean, that's, I think that's an important thing you point out. I mean, we think, you know, hundreds of years ago, thousands, like, what were they doing all day? Probably just tossing around, going to work, and then, what, standing around in their houses with no TVs? I mean, what did they do? Right. <laughs> yeah, But they still obviously had distractions and social lives. Have been, if you've ever watched a historical documentary, I'm sure the bustlingness of the community was probably a lot more active than we have it now, because... We interact less with our neighbors and local people. So I don't know. Yeah. But yeah, like there is an importance in that making space and, you know, having quiet time. And we could probably do with a lot less of our lives. I mean, I'm not completely detached from everything. It's a little bit of order that my wife gets a bit annoyed about. as <laughs> so I'm trying to let go of things and bin off stuff that's not necessary anymore. And so, trying to take those principles, and we try to live a sort of minimal life as much as possible. I mean, we've got a five year old daughter, so you know that comes with quite a lot of stuff sometimes <laughs> that you can't not not have. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's I guess just try not to live like a super, superfluous yeah. life, yeah. having lots of unnecessary things. I mean, don't live up to your means, that kind of thing, just because you earn a lot. If you do, it doesn't mean you have to buy a lot or have to live up to the everything you get. You can still yeah. have a comfortable, moderated life without, you know, buying every single thing that takes your fancy.
0: Yeah, no, no doubt. I mean, and it, it just strikes me that that's a common thread for men and women throughout church history who have sought to mm, connect definitely. deeply with God. They Yeah, they're taking everything mm, off. Yeah, yeah, they made a bold move to say I can't have all those things around and I think it at least begs the question for us today to say if we're seeking to know God's voice in our life to hear that to see the movement of the spirit it's a common thread that distractions get uh, oh yeah in in the way of that. so many today <laughs> yeah I mean the- now
1: we've got our phones on us pinging us all the time we've got constant noise from 24-7 streaming things, 24-7 yeah. news. The traffic even outside is constant. I mean, no one sleeps. Nothing ever goes away.
0: Well, and, and I think this is why... And I live in know, a
1: quiet town and it's still noisy.
0: <laughs> no, no doubt. <laughs> no matter where you are, it's, it's infiltrated the whole world. And it stands out to me then to shift sort of to a different um, component of church history that you wrote about being the Didache, which was this... Um, this book written, you know, back again, probably first century, potentially, of course, there's always always debate when it comes to these things. But one of the things that you had written about as one of these practices sort of that you mentioned liturgically, that has fallen out of practice was praying the Lord's Prayer three times a day, and fasting every Wednesday and Friday.
1: Yes, that's, that was a challenge that when I first read it, I decided to take upon myself and see how that helped, how that worked. And praying three times a day, it sounds simple, but also was still difficult. Just when you get so caught up in the business of everything, work and life, kids, whatever else is going on.
0: (laughs) That's probably Anthony's (laughs) very point with moving to the desert. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. So so how did that go? um, So what happened? um
1: so i eventually i found an app which was like a time to pray app it's called and you can set the timers so it reminds you twice three times a day to pray it'll either give you set prayers or you can just use it to you know prompt you so i still have that to remind me i still try and take that into practice uh, the fasting every Wednesday and Friday, I try and do still. I've been doing that for I don't know, at least five, six years now, So, which that just comprises of uh, just having a meal in the evening, nothing else.
0: Okay, because that essentially so, makes a 24-hour fast from the evening before, give or take.
1: Yeah, and when I look, I like looked, I like the topic of fasting and it just fasting in general, that's what happens kind of a love-hate relationship. I like fasting, but I also don't like fasting. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know what I mean?
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Fasting is beneficial, powerful, But
1: also it's hard to do. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, um, when I was re- researching fasting for one of my blogs and uh, looking at how the uh, church did it, there's uh, various levels of it. Most of the time it was just abstaining from food until sundown, and then you'd have like a meal in the evening. So I thought that was the most common early practice. So that's the one I sort of based me fasting practices around. So for the Wednesday, Friday one, I just thought, well, I just wait till sundown or evening meal, eat then. That was the easiest way to do it.
0: So you're not eating from night to night, essentially.
1: Yeah, basically. So my last meal the night before is that's it. And then carry on and then try and use the times for meals for prayer time instead. Yeah, and uh, and then obviously with Lent was quite a big thing in the early church, that was quite an early practice as well from like second century, like you know the 40, I mean we have it's 40 days before Easter now but originally it varied between anywhere from like a week to a few weeks to a month to 40 days so and then it eventually became fixed at 40 days because of the whole connection to Jesus in the desert and things so my first year of trying to fast for 40 days was interesting uh, in that same model of just waiting till evening rather than nothing for 40 days i mean that's probably a bit extreme
0: <laughs> people have done it but i think you you need know, yeah, a doctor to yeah. sort of keep you going and and honestly that's funny because one of the mistakes i made early on when trying to do a 24 hour fast was i was young i wasn't thinking through it was I'm going to fast tomorrow being that day, not realizing what that meant was you're eating. Let's say I'm going to fast Tuesday. You eat Monday, fast Tuesday. Then you don't eat again till Wednesday. You're actually more at like 36 hours or 40 hours. You're getting closer to two days than one day. And so that evening to evening thing has been a helpful way that I like to remind people if you're going to fast, that's a helpful way to sort of get into that 24 hour mode. But I think that's a powerful way to make some of this space. Maybe you're not moving to the desert, but tell us about the space yeah, that fasting sort of bringing creates the for desert you.
1: into your life. If you like, yeah, if you want to think of it that way. We're not necessarily going there physically, but spiritually, we can bring that desert experience into our lives by, you know, just clearing out the cut clutter. Turn off your phones, turn off Netflix, whatever. Make yeah, a quiet see, area if you key. can.
0: Cause you're not then, cause that's, that's, I think step two is one, you can say I'm fasting, but you can very easily replace it with other things that aren't actually giving you space. So when you're mm. fasting, do you have, do you say, Hey, this is space so that I can blank. Cause we can yeah, very so easily just say, Oh man, I'm hungry. So I'm just going to watch TV all day to get through my fast I don't think that's exactly bringing the desert into our (laughs) lives,
1: right? I mean, some days I'm busy with work. So I do gloss over the fact I'm fasting a bit more because things just get hectic and I can't not do it. i run my own business, so it's a bit trickier to just you know push that away. But um, generally, I will make time to pray in that time when I would normally be eating or read the Bible and do a bit of prayer time. And so for that 20 to 30 minutes, lunch break i'd normally have is filled with the heavenly bread if you like the bread of life the scriptures
0: mm. yes man does not jesus live fill on bread me with
1: himself <laughs> yes exactly so it's taking the principle of heavenly bread that is jesus the holy spirit in us and having that for lunch if you like And uh, yeah well, or ev- um, i live next door to a church so sometimes i go there in the afternoon if they've got a afternoon service on or something And take communion instead, which I don't really count as breaking a fast, having a little bit of a holy bread, if you like.
0: (laughs) No, absolutely. Well, and that seemed to be an important part of of Anthony's practice, right? Like people would bring him food, and it's not to Mm. say he fasted all the time, but there was again, you know, we're made with bodies, right? Like a lot of what we talk about here at Rua Space is the importance of bringing our body into our prayer. This isn't just something that happens in our mind. And I think that's why fasting can be so powerful. Is it's integrating everything in the right here and the right now.
1: Hmm. Yeah. When my as I say, when I did my first forty-day fast, I felt like I was completely changed after that. Mm. Not only like well, spiritually and like my mindset towards things, but just cravings and things like that. Like I've got quite a sweet tooth. I like my chocolate but um <laughs> but like after not eating anything properly for like not snacking and everything for like 40 days like that sort of that desire disappeared and when i went to eat chocolate it felt too sweet and it was more like oh don't want it anymore or don't want it as much and so it sort of i don't know, feel like it reset my body a bit but also the knock-on effect was other desires you know not necessarily food related but other things or wants, or maybe even you know fleshly lustful sinful things that you might struggle with or whatever those kind of things were suddenly like I don't know it's like a distance Mm. so you know just I felt like I'd stepped back a little bit and yeah I don't know taking a deep breath and refreshed completely and I do the way that yeah it's hard to explain unless you sort of experience it kind of thing but uh it was definitely beneficial i recommend if you're able to do something like that and then yeah so it's yeah my perspective on things
0: no that makes complete sense and of course yes checking with doctors and making sure that you're able to but my understanding is intermittent fasting can actually be quite healthy for people
1: yeah Um, it's quite a fad these days isn't it so
0: yeah, it is. Even among people not even doing it for spiritual, quote unquote, mm. reasons, um, people do it. So, you know, check with your doctor what that means, because, of course, all of our bodies are different and we need different things. Um, but you can fast. I mean, even like you said, hey, maybe you're in a situation where you say, you know, my doctor said I can't do a 24 hour fast or whatever, then maybe it is something like you're saying, I'm sure your doctor would be okay saying I'm going to fast for 24 hours from chocolate, or I'm going to do 40 <laughs> days from chocolate. Cause I can promise you most likely your body doesn't need chocolate itself yeah. or candy or itself. Caffeine. So yes. Or what? Caffeine. Yeah. Yeah. Get you up know, we, play coffee. <laughs> so we can, we can even fast from specific things where we say, Hey, if you can't do it that way, there's other ways to do it. But yeah, I, I think those bodily practices can absolutely change yeah. our life and our relationship. I with mean, God. even
1: the even the early church guys—they had, um, I forgot who it was now, uh, but in his writing was saying like, you know, people who are sickly or elderly who couldn't do the Lenten fast properly was just those provisions made saying if you're too weak, then you can have bread and water, you know, with some oil to dip it in, so you can mm. have something to eat throughout the day but it's still not a full meal so it's still restricted. it's just basically dry bread dipped in olive oil and some water mm. which I've also I did that once because I thought I'd try that rather than a strict non-food I did I took bread and some olive oil with some herbs in it and had that for my lunches for the lenten periods and yeah. actually I, I really enjoyed that as plain as it sounds I look forward to my oil dipped bread every day. <laughs> it was really weird. And like, when I was at work in the office and I'll be like, here's my, here's my lunch, you know, just don't mind me dipping my bread and oil and co coworkers, kind of not Christians, you know, be like, what the heck are you eating? <laughs> yeah.
0: But, you know, I think that's one of those things again, where, you know, I, I've talked to a lot of people about suffering and, you know, I don't think I fully understand it understood. Uh, the power that suffering holds until I went through it. And that's not to say I want suffering or I'm grateful for it, or I'd hope it on anybody, but there's something about an experience like suffering that can change you and shape you and invite things Mm. that life. You can't just mentally grasp it. Like oh, I'm going to learn from that person who suffered and just take it on my and, and sort of get those lessons. And I think fasting is one of those things where, Until you go through it, like a lot of the spiritual disciplines, sort of the the things it's pregnant with, you can't experience without going through it. But then when you do, you Mm. wow, it holds so much. Yeah. You have to actually walk through it. Yeah.
1: I mean, you like you say, people suffer. You can maybe take some principles of things that you can learn, but yeah, unless you live it, it's it's hard to fully grasp. I mean, one of the things that sort of came to me throughout reflecting on that initial long-term fast was like it's kind of like we're you know like we're embodying and living out the gospel. We're putting to death our flesh in by depriving it of its most basic needs, which is food, Mm. and we're letting ourselves be wholly dependent on God to sustain us during that time. So, is that whole? you can't fast without being focused on God because you need him to, to give you that sustenance and strength whilst you're depriving yourself essentially killing your body. I mean, you know, in a, in extreme language, but we are depriving ourselves of that very base need. Yeah. And so it well, embodies the whole of the gospel I found.
0: Well, and I think it was Richard Foster who pointed out, you know, when Jesus was talking about fasting, he doesn't say if you fast, he, his teaching is when you fast, (laughs) like he didn't, yeah, I always point out when, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, it wasn't a question of, is this something you do for Jesus? It was no, this is, this is what you do. Like it is a necessary part of this walk. And Mm. There's probably a reason for that. It's Again, I like to look at what are common threads in the lives of people that I want to sort of, you know, I I don't know if it was in our conversation, just the two of us or in our recording, but you mentioned the cloud of witnesses, right? This image from Hmm. Hebrew of those who have come before us and walked faithfully. Something like fasting is common throughout, I feel like. Yeah,
1: I think because the early church did, I mean, they took that not if, but when, mentality it was jesus says when the bridegroom's with you you don't fast but once he's gone you will i mean he went he's gone went back to heaven he left us with the holy spirit but he's not physically here with us so we are in that period of fasting Mm. that mourning period in a sense whilst we wait for the performance to come back
0: did you have any resources you turned to when you were starting out fasting or that help you during your times of fasting now that maybe we could say, hey, if you've never experienced this, you know, here's a place to start? Or did you sort of just kind of dive in and, and start? Because, hey, sometimes with spiritual formation, that's I, uh... a great way to do it. Just <laughs> dive in and start figuring it out. Maybe have a yeah, community I'm not... with you.
1: Never much one for reading instructions beforehand in anything. I just jump yeah. straight in and figure out as I go. <laughs>
0: yeah. Hey, that works. I mean, but, so what may you before this? Before about?
1: this, the longest fast I'd ever done was five days, yeah. and that was many years before. And I was like, right, it's Lent. Reading the other church. This was just a mm-hmm. expectation of all the church. It wasn't an optional thing. It was really a. It's Lent. We everybody fasts. That's what you do. So I was like, well, just do it then.
0: Dive in, Yeah. (laughs) And I think you offered some really good ideas, you know, evening to evening, um, some of the foods and things you've taken in church services, prayer. So I think there's some great things people can start with. And of course, you know, Luke, I could continue talking about fasting and and Anthony with you all day, but you know, that was just one part of the book. And so I just want to let people know you, you, you go into Ignatius of Antioch, Cyprian, Justin Martyr, there's more on the Didache um, and and other people, and you dig into Mm. issues around around unity and apologetics and, and even more. And so I would highly encourage people, you know, there'll be a link to the book in the description below that you can journey through. I appreciated you adding your reflections on what had been read. If people want to sort of explore, we only began to scratch the surface, but what might be a final word of encouragement or challenge that you might offer to people, you know, when it comes to looking into our early church history?
1: Um, I guess, going with an open mind to be ready to learn, but also be prepared to be challenged because I mean, like mentioned Ignatius, he, he really challenged me. And because of his, his whole willingness in towards his march towards martyrdom, I mean, he wrote all his letters while he was being escorted across the Southern coast of Asia or wherever it was towards europe and rome to be thrown to the lions basically Mm. and he's so positive (laughs) he's just like his whole mindset of you know i'm running my race i've come to the end of it you know don't distract me i'm going i'm going to see my king and this the one thing that really struck me from him that challenged me was he goes he's writing to the church in rome who by the sounds of it were quite powerful they could probably have rescued him or, you know, wrangled something to have him imprisoned rather than eaten. <laughs> and he was just like, no, don't, don't let your love for me, you know, distract me from my completing my race. Wow. He's like, he's like, let my, let the, I think how he says it, he goes, let the bellies of the animals be my tomb. I mean,
0: that's a whole nother it's just like, wow, yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> it's just like, whoa, he's just, he's so ready to give his life for the gospel.
0: Yeah. And, and of course it's like, very contextual. We'd have to get into all the persecution and the empire and all oh, that. Yeah, so there's definitely, a lot it's sort just, of swirling around, but it's powerful but to it's stay just, so true to that walk.
1: Yeah. His willingness to that was so challenging. It just And a lot of the early church in that time was of this mindset of being heavily persecuted. It just made me feel very lazy.
0: You know, <laughs>
1: in our modern, comfortable world, I was just like, "Wow, we are so lazy. Mm. We've got it so good, and we're so you're distracted by everything other than, you know, really pursuing God." And then we're like, "Why don't I see God moving my life?" Like, well, because we'd rather watch Netflix or scroll through TikTok mm. than dedicate ourselves to prayer for an hour or so. Yeah, you know, it's that uh, <laughs> you can't yeah. have them both. Yeah. it's so, uh, powerful.
0: And, yeah. <laughs> and, and I do want to encourage people, you know, um, I've discovered that what you seek, you are most likely to find and what you don't seek you're most likely to miss. And so if you do desire, you know, if a 30 minutes or an hour sounds crazy, Hey, maybe you're in a, a, a period of life where that is really difficult, but I bet you can still find 15 minutes potentially, or there's prayer, it. there's prayer types that we teach that are, five seconds here and there throughout your day there's ways to mindfully incorporate it Mm. we just have to make the mindful decision to be intentional about bringing it in but there are definitely ways to do it and i I think that intention reminders on your phone yeah
1: that's all i do i just have reminders on my phone that ping up every like nine o'clock twelve o'clock three o'clock or whatever or shift it around depending on the time scale and be like time to pray. so i'm just like it's just that mental reminder to break free from whatever you're doing and go, oh, yes, it's time to Even it's just five minutes. Then you yeah. can work up to 10 minutes, 15, 20. Absolutely. Whatever.
0: Absolutely. Well, Luke, where can we send people to find what you are up to and find out more about your work?
1: Uh, I have my site, LukeJWilson.com, which is one of my books. And I have. That ancientfaith.uk, which is why I post my blogs, which are all around this sort of topic theology, early church, how the two cross over, and yeah, everything in between.
0: Excellent. Well, friends, you can find those in the description below. Of course, you can also find the book in the description below. Um, do you do much on social media as well?
1: Yeah wherever there's internet, I am. Um, okay, you know? perfect. So
0: we'll we'll put links. So if you want to know, there'll be links, you can just click below and find it. Highly recommend it. Dig into the Church Fathers. Luke, thanks so much, friend. You've got me thinking more about ways I need to incorporate fasting. So I appreciate that. And hey, thanks so much for your time. This has been an honor and a blessing. It's
1: okay. It's been fun.
0: Hey friends, Phil here again. Before you go, I just wanted to thank you once again for joining us for this episode today. I highly recommend checking out the show notes, the description below to find links to different things discussed in this episode, as well as to go deeper with Rua Space. Whether it's Patreon, where we have exclusive content and you can help support the podcast and the ministry, to setting up a free one-on-one spiritual direction call to discuss if spiritual direction would be right for you, what that process is is what that is like as well as our Christian Yoga YouTube channel and our Christ-centered yoga memberships with over 100 videos designed to help you grow in your relationship with God, feel more connected feel more present, and hopefully feel a little better in your body as well. And finally, friends, if you enjoyed this episode today, we would be greatly honored and blessed if you would leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps us know how we are doing as well as reach more people. So friends, thank you again for being with us today. We pray that you are blessed, challenged, and encouraged. And until next time, grace and peace be with you.